Our main speaker tonight is Amy Kay. <laughs> I am Amy Kay, and I'm an alcoholic. Okay. Um, I'll give you my vitals first. I uh, was born in 1968. I got sober in 1983. I was 14. I recently celebrated 15 years of sobriety on Halloween. And uh, now I'll begin with what it was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. First, I want to thank Tim for making the last two months totally nerve-wracking. My stomach's been upset for a long time, and uh, I've been rooting for 9.30 all day long. And, uh, <clears throat> but this is my truth, and, and uh, okay. It's an honor and a privilege to speak at any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, this especially, and this is now my home group, and I've only been in the group for a little over a year, and I felt unworthy, um, as if you wouldn't be interested in anything I had to say. A, because I've not been here long. B, because I got sober at 14. And you know what? It really just doesn't matter. Um, I'm up here to keep myself sober and hopefully help the newcomer. I, uh, I was born in Hollywood. I was raised in Santa Monica. And... Uh, <laughs> um, and I was born to uh, a mom and dad who uh, <laughs> were right here in the front row tonight. And uh, this is the first time I've spoke in front of my mother. My father got sober a month after I did, and he's heard me. And uh, I've been nervous to speak in front of my mom, but I've got to tell you that seeing her face tonight, I got a warm, safe, comfortable feeling. And, I did not like my mom for a lot of years, so this is this is change for this alcoholic. I uh, I didn't like my mother and father growing up, and I'll tell you why. Um, my father, my father was uh, <laughs> my father was an alcoholic, is an alcoholic, and uh, when he was under the influence of alcohol, he was violent and rageful, and treated my mother badly. And I knew very young that alcohol was doing this. So I resented alcohol and I resented him when he was under the influence. When he was not, he was my pillar of strength. He was the apple of my eye. I was the apple of his eye. I felt that way. He tickled me. He made me laugh. My mother would ground me. He would take me off grounding. Um, <clears throat> uh, she made the rules and, and he helped me break them and, and it was okay. And. Uh, he quit drinking in 1972. And when my mother drank, my mother is from Rochester, New York, and, and she moved here to Santa Monica Young. And when she drank, um, she be turned into a British woman. She got an accent that I don't know where it came from. <laughs> but uh, she would say words like vomit, and I need another beer, and a maltini. And um, I saw that alcohol turned her into somebody that I didn't recognize or know. Um, and. Uh, <laughs> So pretty much right from the gate, I knew that alcohol transformed people into what I did not want to be. And I promised myself I would never drink. I also promised myself I would never smoke cigarettes because I would smell it on my mother's fingers and my dad's fingers and 
it just reeked bad and I, and I didn't like that smell. And um, I didn't have any plans for myself, however. I just knew I wasn't going to do these things. Um, I was loved as a kid. I grew up with a sister who's just about seven years older than me. And uh, she was very into the whole dog town scene and, and, and uh, surfing and skateboarding and, and hanging out with all the, the Alva kids. We lived right next door to them. And um, it was an image. And she upheld that as best as she could. And uh, I was just young and, and impressionable and um, wanted to be around her a lot. And she was, she was pretty emotionally abusive. She would do things like, it used to be that if you dialed your own phone number, and hung up, your phone would ring. And she would tell me it was for me. And uh, she would run in the other room, and I would answer the phone, and she would say, Amy, it's Mickey Mouse, and you're ugly, and I hate you, and you're not allowed in Disneyland anymore. And, uh, <laughs> and so uh, I didn't feel a lot of love. And, um, I needed a lot of love, and regardless of how much love I got from mom and dad, and you know, it was a lot when they could and, and when they would, and, and they did, um, but I, I always needed more. And this may have been my alcoholism before I put a drink in my body, and maybe it wasn't. I believe I was born with alcoholism, um, but I was always looking for love. And I would, uh, like when the movie Grease came out, I would imagine five girls outside my window serenading me, tell me more, tell me more. And I, and I would just go into this whole visual, and I remember being like 9 and 10 years old, listening to 93 KHJ, sad, sad songs, and, and I'm in so much pain, and there's no man in my life, there's no boy in my life, and I'm, I'm heartbroken, you know? Um, for lack thereof, I, I don't know what it was, but um, I just always felt a need. And uh, at six years old, I smoked pot for the first time, and it was with my big sister. And at eight years old, I inhaled Pam that you spray in your frying pans. And uh, mom and dad had no, no idea this was going on. Um, at 11, I had my first drink. And uh, I'd been doing a lot of drugs whenever I could. And, and um, I was failing out of school miserably. And I attracted the type of people that I was. And I was starting to ditch school in fourth grade. And, um, at 11, when I had my first drink, I blacked out. And I was a blackout drinker from the gate, and it never stopped. And I would do anything I could to get drunk. And uh, if that meant standing outside of liquor stores, finding older people to buy alcohol for my, myself and my friends, that's what I would do. And uh, there was a lot of willing people. And at 14 years old, 13 and 14 years old, um, I didn't necessarily have the body of a 13 or 14 year old. I didn't get carded when I went into bars. And I would put on the makeup and the pumps and all the aquanet in my hair and the eyeshadow. And, and uh, I, didn't have a, I didn't have a hard time at that. And it landed me in the back seats of a lot of cars, not wearing a lot of clothes, not knowing where I was or who I was with. And uh, I never questioned whether or not I had a disease. I thought I was way too young. Um, I did, however, know that um, now I was putting alcohol in my body, that thing that ruined mom and dad, that thing that turned my, my examples into uh, less than what I needed, I suppose. Um, <clears throat> but it gave me that feeling of love. And if it didn't give me that feeling of love, it 
made me not care about that feeling that I was looking for. So I was off and running, and uh, alcohol brought my bottom right up to me. That's what it did for me. And I drank uh, in order to call my boyfriend. I drank before I was coming over. My mom had this cabinet above the pantry with all the bottles of alcohol, and I don't know that she even knows this today, but I would just pour and mix into one big glass and just down it and then make the call to the guy that I thought I loved because he looked like Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> um, and he just he treated me miserably. He was never faithful to me. It was bad. Um, I was put in jail twice behind the use of alcohol and my friends left me lying in the gutter one night on Ventura Boulevard. Um, I was in a blackout and I was, I was taken to juvenile hall. And uh, the other time I was picked up by Operation Stay in School, ditching school and passing out the beers to my friends and I was taken to my jail and to jail and, and my father came to pick me up and you know my dad, he, uh, although he had quit drinking, he continued to smoke pot and eventually we, we started smoking pot together and um, uh, he, his words for me were, you know, Amy, you can do whatever you want, just maintain, you know, and I could, <laughs> I could never maintain, ever. <laughs> <clears throat> And he picked me up that day, and I'm handcuffed to that bench, and, and he's doing that, you know, one more time I've disappointed my dad, and um, by this point, my mother's relationship with, with me was not, um, it just wasn't good. It was a typical teenage relationship between a, a girl and her mom at, at 13 and 14, and, and uh, she would kick me out of the house, and we would say nasty things to one another, and uh, she would have yard sales and sell my things on the weekends. And, um, <laughs> I remember specifically showing up on a Monday in junior high in eighth grade, and a girlfriend of mine was wearing some of my clothes and thanked me <coughs> for a ghetto blaster. And uh, I would move out, and I lived, uh, I lived in an abandoned school for a little while, and uh, I lived with some friends, and. Um, I, I got into cocaine and all the while drinking, all the while blacking out, hearing stories of what I did the next day, ruining parties. Um, I'm, I'm the drunk that loves you and you're my best friend, even though I'm sleeping with your man, you know what I mean? And uh, I, was, uh, I was scandalous and um, I had no, no self-esteem. I, I had not a care in the world when it came to grades. I, uh, I felt I had nothing to lose and nothing to gain, and it didn't matter. This was my life, and it was, it was all right. I was having fun, I thought. And at 14, I, I was again living out of the house, and, and my dad came and he found me, and he sat me down. And he said, Amy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, uh, an ultimatum here. He said, um, you can either uh, come home and try to make it work with your mom one more time, or you can... Uh, live with your girlfriends like you're doing now and, and party and do all the things you're liking to do and, and keep your little job at Winchell's or whatever it was at the time and, and, uh, and if you choose the latter of the two I'm going to let you go and like I said my dad was everything in the world to me and uh, the alcohol meant more at that point and I said okay you can let me go I'd rather live with my friends and he said, okay, let's go to school and we're going to get your records and your books and we're going to get you checked out and, uh, and we'll get you on your way. And, and we did that and the nurse sat down with us and he told my dad about Pasadena Drug of Rehabilitation Institution. And immediately my choices changed. 
from, uh, from those two to, the, to uh, <clears throat> this rehabilitation or back to juvenile hall. And I chose the rehab. And, uh, and I said, I'm only going to go for two weeks. And you have to let me smoke cigarettes, because at this point I'd been smoking. And uh, whatever, whatever you want, kid, we just we got to get you some help. So, uh, so I went to this rehab, and, and uh, I was in there for 50 days. I was in there for two months. And what they did in there was they got me back eating the right foods, and they, and they got me into something called biofeedback, where you learn to get high naturally. And I thought this was a load of crap, watching a computer shape grow and shrink. And, and it wasn't doing it for me, but I'd try anything at this point. And... Um, they had me in a lot of meetings all day long and talking to counselors and therapists and I was in pajamas for three weeks and finally I got out of those and they took me to outside meetings and um, Danny T was the first speaker I heard in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and he made me laugh and that was the first time I had that gut-wrenching laughter that I was raised with um, and there was nothing in my body to induce it. It was just real. And uh, one of the other things I had noticed <clears throat> about the people that worked in the hospital was that they were uh, speaking in complete sentences, and I could see the whites of their eyes, and they, were, they had an actual interest in what I was saying, and they cared about me. And uh, they started bringing my mom and dad in for, for family meetings, and I had to tell them some of the things that I'd been through, like molestation and stuff like that. And uh, my mom vomited, and my dad got very angry and I wrote down a list of all the things I had put in my body and uh, it was hard, it was difficult and I had to learn how to build a relationship with these people and how to communicate with them and it was very difficult and I was 14 and I knew that I was going to get out of this place and go back into high school and, uh, <clears throat> and I did and I got out of there and uh, I was scared to death. I was scared to death to lose what little I had had and even though I was 14 and didn't, I mean, what do you lose when you're 14? My Barbie townhouse and my skateboard? There's not much to lose when you get sober at 14, but um, the thing is, is that I had, uh, I didn't have a chance at gaining anything if I hadn't done it. I believe that. And uh, my parents put me in an outpatient program and uh, I made some friends in there and, and I, I found out that a couple of them were going to my high school and I went to that school nurse that recommended that rehab and I told her I wanted to start a meeting at my school because I was scared for my sobriety. And she said, okay, we'll do that. And I organized it, and I, there was about eight of us, and we had meetings, and then uh, they broke down because kids talk about stupid stuff, and there's competition and jealousy and all kinds of stuff. So that never worked out, and um, I started ditching school again. And uh, see, I, I never got a sponsor, and I never worked those steps. I would start, and I would do one, two, and three with my counselor in that, in that outpatient program, but it was not um, imperative that I do it as far as she was concerned, the steps I mean. And so I started ditching school and I, and I ended up just leaving school and I, and I thought that it was a perfectly justifiable reason to ditch school because I was going to meetings and my mom didn't get it and I didn't get that she didn't get it and that bad relationship continued and, and uh, um, it was difficult to grow up sober. And, uh, but I did whatever it took and I refused to let these people who I called my friends um, take me down with them and I found out that I no longer had anything in common with them and I wanted new things for my life and even though it wasn't school it would be sobriety and that was enough for them and uh, 
And the longer I stayed sober, I started speaking at, at high schools and making myself available to do that. And I started speaking on panels and I started going to a lot of meetings and three, four meetings a day. And I started uh, getting commitments like secretary commitments and stuff like that. And I had a few sponsors and I didn't have a lot of luck with them. Um, the first sponsor I had slept with the man that I was seeing. The second one I had got drunk and the third one asked me to sponsor her. So I thought, okay, <clears throat> um, the sponsorship stuff is not working for me. I'm just going to rely solely on God. And so I did that for 10 years, for 10 years. And uh, it worked for a little bit. And what I did was I said, all right, God, I would take my flute to, to the mountains and I would play my flute to God. And uh, I would write poetry for God, and I gave up eating red meat, and I gave up sex, and I was celibate for over a year, and I did all this stuff for God, and I let go of all of my friends, and my whole world was opening up, and I had this communication line with God that was just unbelievable. I could hear him, and I could talk to him, and I felt safe and um, in charge and in control. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, and after that year or so of celibacy, I met a guy, and uh, I said, all right, God, you can, you can relax for a while. <laughs> and um, I made this man God, and I met him when I was 18, and uh, this is what I was. My, one, of the, one of my babies, a very good friend of mine also, we were sitting around talking about this doll that we're going to create. And this is, the, I was this doll. And her name is Codependent Cuddly Carrie. And you pull her string and she says, is my butt too big? Where are you going? Don't you want me to come with you? You're my world. You're everything to me. I love you. And I... <laughs> this poor guy, I, I suffocated him. And I didn't get it that he, he couldn't love me back. And... Uh, and he would stay sober, and he would get drunk, and he would stay sober, and he would get drunk. And after all of that, I stayed sober, and, and no matter what, I stayed sober. And I would continue to do whatever I could with what little program I had. And, and six years later, I, I stopped that madness, and I learned what love was not. And I learned how to love, and I learned how to be faithful. I'd never been faithful in a relationship before. And, uh, and then I was single for three years without a sponsor and relying on God. And it was... Uh, it was keeping me resentful. It was keeping me codependent. It was keeping me needy. It was keeping me um, afraid to tell on myself. I would sit in meetings and hear people quote pages out of the big book and I would nod my head like, yeah, and I had no idea what they were talking about. But I had this number attached to me, this number of years, and I thought that I had to be everything that um, my ego told me I was supposed to be, and I was scared to death to tell on myself. And I'm really surprised I never drank. God kept a close eye on me. Um, I started reading a number of books. Anything but the big book, please. You know, it was so boring to me. I just didn't get it. And I would read a lot of Dan Millman and, and The Tao of Pooh and, and uh, wonderful books, great stuff. But you know what? It, wouldn't keep me, it wouldn't, didn't keep me sane. I had no spiritual sobriety. I had no emotional sobriety. I had physical sobriety, and that was it. And I couldn't keep a, a guy in my life, so I just thought, well, I don't need a man in my life. I need God, and that's it. Screw men, you know? And I, I tried to change my perception so that I would be comfortable alone. And sometimes I was, but I was kidding myself. And then I met this other guy, 
And uh, see, what was happening is I, I lived in the valley. Yes, I was geographically undesirable. And um, I, uh, I was living in the valley, and I was going to Pierce, and I had a little single apartment, the first place I had gotten on my own. And uh, I was 10 years sober, and the earthquake happened, and I lost my place. And FEMA gave me a list of cities I could move to, and they said that they would pay a portion of my rent for a year and a half. So I moved to Venice, and I lived at 38 rows for $64 a month. <laughs> that was probably one of the best times of my life. Um, but I was scared to leave that house. And I was sober 10 years. And uh, I thought, I, I didn't get sober for this. And I thought these people were so cool, and they were, I wanted what they had, but I don't know that they even knew what they had, and if they were happy with what they had. And it was like there was this big, fast-forward mess going on, and I feel like it was, it's as, to me, a man without God is like a teenager in a fast car, you know? And, um, that's what I was surrounded by, and, and then I meet this guy, and, and, and he's nothing like I've ever been attracted to in my life, and uh, he's got all kinds of tattoos, and he's all kinds of muscles, and he's got this look on his face, and he's got a earring out of his eyebrow, and a goatee that he calls a womb broom, and he's got earrings in his ears, and he's got this walk, and... Uh, he makes me laugh, though, and I'm so interested in him. And I'm the girl that if you make me laugh, I'm naked, you know? I can't help it. And um, <laughs> he was so funny. And he had nine months of sobriety, and I thought, this is it. I'm going to take him home to meet my parents. And, uh, and <laughs> my mother's face... <laughs> And my dad's tight face, you know, that tight smile, and um, they're always cordial, you know. And uh, she'll always cook a good meal. And um, but you don't understand. He makes me laugh, and he's sober, you know. And uh, so we decided four months after knowing one another that we would get engaged. And a year later, we got married. And uh, two weeks after the honeymoon, we found out we were pregnant. So 95, I, 94 we met, 95 we were married, 96 I had a baby, 97 I had another baby. Um, whew, tired. Um, <laughs> but what was happening is uh, this relationship, when I got pregnant, it started to go downhill, this marriage that I had. and um, I would not have wanted to be, I would not have been married to myself if I were this guy. When I was pregnant, I was horrible. I was hormonally challenged in every way, and um, I accused him of um, being white trash because we had no Italian dressing in the refrigerator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I would cry over the stupidest stuff, and everything made me vomit, and I was a mess. And he told me after we had that baby, she was three months old, he said, we have got to get a program. You have got to get a sponsor. I've got to work a program, and we've got to start over. And if we don't, we're going to get a divorce. And so um, we separated for three months. And he found the Pacific Group. And I found a sponsor that was uh, a sponsor by name. And he started getting very active in this group. And uh, like I said, I got pregnant again right after that. And 
I was home on the couch pregnant and with a little girl and, and he was, I'm going to a meeting, I got a commitment, I got to go to the yard, I got to go to a watch, what are these things and why aren't you home with me? You know, I was very angry, I was very jealous. I thought every woman in this room wanted my husband. I had no self-esteem, no security. I couldn't stand being ripe and full and pregnant and fat when I was just a little tiny thing prior to that. And um, My happiness was based on what I looked like and, 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 and what he looked like. And um, You know what you guys did to him? You turned that muscle, ego, crazy hard guy into this man that bought a minivan who wears long sleeves, took the earrings out, and uh, He's 100% Alcoholics Anonymous. He was my Eskimo. And I wanted what he had, and I had to tell on myself to get it. And when his sponsor, Don Newcomb, got in an accident, um, I went to the hospital to see Don, and uh, I met Karen Garrison there. And I just watched her, and I listened to her, and I saw that she was watching the boys while Don was in the hospital, and Mary Lisa was by his side, and uh, I admired her, and I thought she was... Uh, there was no bull about this woman, and I respected that. <clears throat> and Charles and I were arguing still, and he said, you gotta do something, man. We're just, it's not gonna work. And, and I, I just called her up, and I said, I'm having a hard time, I don't know what to do, I'm, I'm having problems at home, and my husband, and she said, do you want me to sponsor you or what? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yes, yes. And she said, okay, you gotta get on your knees every morning and every night, I want you to read two pages of the big book a day, I want you to go to four meetings and get two commitments. I know you got two babies at home. That's the best you can do right now. Do it. I said, okay, anything. And I was willing to go to any lengths. And it's just been over a year. And I'm still doing all that stuff and more. And I'm sponsoring eight beautiful women that go to any lengths today. And you know what? I don't debate with my sponsor. I don't question a damn thing that she says to me over the phone. I just do it. And I'm, and I'm happy. I'm happy. Um, Charles and I are still together. And he's still my pillar of strength. He's still my example. And I learn from him, and I get to be an example to him, and I get to have this 15 years of sobriety and dedicate it to God, to my sponsor, to my mother and father, to my two beautiful children, to the girls I sponsor. It has nothing to do with me. I thought this was a selfish program. It's a selfless program. And if you're new in the room tonight, I want to tell you this, that I read something, and it just really hit home for me. And it made me think of when I was new. And it makes me think of whenever I go through something difficult in my life, I think of this. And it is that uh, if you come to the edge of all of the light that you have inside and you have to take a step into the darkness of the unknown, believe that one of two things will happen to you. Either there will be something solid for you to stand on or you'll be taught how to fly. And that's what it is here. And uh, either way, you're safe. Either way, you're safe. And since I've come to the Pacific Group, I did a lot of clubhouse sobriety. I did a lot of Ohio Street on Saturday night, Second Hill on Wen Second and Hill on Wednesday night. You know, um, a lot of the Valley Club. And I'm not knocking any of it. I stayed sober for a long time doing that stuff. Um, you have restored my faith in Alcoholics Anonymous. I love the traditions here. I was raised with traditions. You know, my mother's house at Christmas is like Mrs. Claus. You know. <laughs> Um, sitting down, having a meal with my family. That's what I grew up with. That's, that's what this place reminds me of. You, you've taught me to be who I am when I'm in prayer. 
always, whether I'm in this meeting or at the market or home with my husband, you're teaching me how to practice my principles and all my affairs. And I, I started working the steps again with Karen, and, and I'm three quarters of the way through my ninth step, and uh, I didn't have a lot of fear in my body today knowing I was going to get up here. And like I said, when I saw my mother's face, I felt safe and warm, and I, did not, I, I resented her, like I said. And now I have a love for her that uh, has come through staying sober, through becoming a mother, and uh, just a whole change of perception. I love my life. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love to give this away. I love to see people get it and be enthusiastic about it. Um, there's nothing better. I think that there's so many people in this world who may even not have a disease, but could use the 12 steps. <laughs> Seriously. It has changed my life. And uh, at 14 years of sobriety, when I started over, uh, it was a surrender, truly, and I wasn't scared anymore, and I knew that everything was going to be okay, and I have a, a sponsor that I trust and that I love, and I know that she loves me, and I try to be that for, for other people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just try to be my link in the chain, like my husband says, you know, and another thing that he taught me that is so true is that um, whether you have time or you don't, you, you, you don't have to get drunk to start working the steps. You can start over any time. And I had a lot of amends to do because I'd had 14 years of, li or gosh, 28 years of life. And uh, it's, just, it's just freedom. There's nothing scary about it. So stay. <laughs> stay. It's right, and it's good, and it's God. And God's not scary. You know, he's, um, he's always been my right-hand man. <laughs> he's, um, I'll tell you this. This is my short story about God. Not long ago, my husband and I were having problems. And our marriage was threatened again, and uh, I didn't know what to do. I was very, very scared. Not, so, not even so much for myself, but for these babies, you know, and that whole family unit thing. And I had people in, from all directions coming to me with advice. My sponsor, my friends, the girls I sponsor, everybody telling me what they thought was best. My mom and dad, my sister. And it was like madness in my head. And uh, I'm feeding my son, Jake, who at the time was, I don't know, six, seven, eight months, years, eight months old. And, he had food all over his face, and he was a mess, and, and I just started praying for an answer. God, what do I do? What do I do? This is crazy. I don't know. I don't know what to do. And he said, Amy, feed Jake. Just feed Jake. So I just do what's right in front of me. I love this place. I cannot get enough of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I guess that's all I got. Thanks. <laughs>